Well, um, my name is David Balzer, in case you're a visitor. I'm our pastor of outreach and connection. I'm an assistant pastor here. And I've been given the great privilege to preach God's word to you. I'll be preaching from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. That's Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. The title of this sermon is God's Glory in the Church. Uh, oh, and it's at this time, thank you, I was remembering, um, our children can be dismissed for children's church, uh, K-4 through third grade, so if you would, please stand and, and, and meet Miss uh, Sierra in the back of the sanctuary, so you can be dismissed at this time for children's church. Thank you. Let's go ahead and read God's Word. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. Listen to God's Word. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Please pray with me. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your love for us. And we thank You for Your Holy Spirit who strengthens us to be able to take in Your, your deep and powerful love for us. Lord God, we pray that you would meet with us in a special way through your word this morning. God, we desperately need to know your love more deeply. We desperately need you to strengthen us to sit down and be loved. God, we pray that you would fill us with your love today. We pray, that, we pray the same prayer that Paul prayed. I won't repeat it. <laughs> but that you would do that for us, Pinewood Church and your whole church around the world, this very morning that you would set the trajectory for this new year and the rest of our lives focused on your love for us and that through your love for us, you would do everything else <laughs> for your glory, Lord. Help us to taste and see that the Lord is good as you point us to the cross of Christ this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, so, day after Christmas, it's like, okay, Ephesians, like, that's kind of a, you think maybe do like sort of an epiphany-ish sermon or whatever. But um, think about it this way. We're going from the manger to the temple. You know, on the eighth day after Jesus was born, he was brought by, his, uh, by Mary and Joseph to the temple to be circumcised. And, and you can read about that in the Gospels. But what, us, what I want us to see is big picture in terms of God's plan of salvation. The plan was to go from to the manger to the temple. And by temple, I mean you and me and all who trust in Jesus. 
that the whole point of salvation is for God to be with his people in love and for us to be with him in love and to enjoy one another in love forever and ever and ever. Amen. That's what it's all about. But if you're like me, you need to be reminded of this. Um, You need to be reminded over and over that God loves you. And so Joel and I talk about what makes a good sermon, you know. Uh, You can say a bunch of stuff, but if you just say a bunch of stuff again, think about this in a good way. It can be like an open hand, you know. And the slap is like glory and goodness. It's not like abusive. Okay, so (laughs) don't do nothing. But what makes a good sermon is when it comes into a fist, right? Wham! With love, right? And so here's the fist coming at you. You ready? You ready? Jesus loves you more than you can possibly ever understand, and he wants that to be the focus of your entire life forever and ever. That's it. Amen. Let's go home. (laughs) That's it, okay? And so in light of that, I want us from this passage to see, to look at three things together. The first is the fact that the church, those who trust in the Lord Jesus, are God's temple, God's new temple. We are God's temple, the new temple. And the second thing is that what does God do to temples? Oh, I don't know. He fills them with his glory. Well, look in the Old Testament. Temples are not meant to be empty. They're meant to be full of the presence and glory of God. And so we are God's temple. God fills us with his glory. And the third thing we're going to look at is how does he do that? What do we understand from God's word here? What is God trying to show you about how he fills you both individually and us together as a church and then us as the church around the world with his glory? When God shows up in his glory, what does it look, sound, and feel like in the heart of the believer? That's where we're going this morning. Let's take a deeper look into Ephesians chapter 3. So how do we know that the church is God's temple Well, I didn't read the actual passage, but I'm about to in a second. But I want you to see a clue. Look in verse 14. The Apostle Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. And then he starts to tell us what he's praying for for these Ephesian Christians, right? But you kind of have to click on for this reason because I don't believe that he's for this reason, is referring to what he's about to say. He's actually tying that to something that he said a little bit earlier. All right? So let's go back to chapter 3, verse 1. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and some of your Bibles you have like a line. So he's taking a Holy Ghost-inspired pause here, and he kind of riffs on the fact that he's in prison for the sake of ministering to the Gentiles. But so what you have here is he goes on for that for a little while, but then back to at verse 14, he goes back to what he was saying in verse 1. It's like he goes unpause, you know, for this reason, okay? Now, we're doing a lot of movement here. So verse 1, for this reason, well, what is he referring back to in verse 1? Well, it's what he just told these Ephesian Christians about their identity. And before I read that to you, I want you to remind you of the context of this letter, this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was the capital city of the region of Asia in the Roman Empire. And uh, it, was, it was famous for being a really pagany, pagan, pagany city. Okay, What do I mean by that? 
Well, when you look at Paul's ministry in the book of Acts, when all these people started getting saved, what happened? They took all their sorcery books, piled them up in the public square, and lit them on fire, and it said the cost was 50,000 pieces of silver, which translates into a whole ton of money. Therefore, there was a lot of witchcraft stuff going on in the life of these former believers, which is kind of interesting, you know? So... It was also a city known for one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which is the great temple to the goddess Diana, or Artemis. People would travel from all over the world to come and visit this temple. And I won't go into all the details, but this was a pagan temple that was an amazing feat of architecture that really defined the culture and life of this city. It was what they were known for. It's like Orlando and Disney World, you know? I'm not reading it. I love Disney World. It's not a pagan temple, but anyway. So, (laughs) right. So, but they were just known for the temple. And so it's kind of interesting how under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, yes, this is true about the Christians in Corinth and other cities, but it's interesting that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul would use this image for these Christians. All right, let's look at what he says. So what did he just say? toward the end of chapter 2, starting at verse 19 of Ephesians 2. He says, so then, and he's he's preaching to these non-Jewish newer Christians, all right? This is a welcome and orientation uh, into the family of God to these more recently adopted children into God's family. And so he gives them this before and after of their adoption story. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You've been adopted into God's family, right? Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, are things starting to click for you a little bit? Those of you who are, you know, looking up here. Are are they starting to click a little bit? So you've got all this language about being filled with all the fullness of God. All this He didn't just pull this out of a vacuum. This connects intimately with what he's been preaching to these fairly new believers who used to be all into witchcraft, these Gentile believers who in the temple in Jerusalem would not have been allowed to go in, he's saying, well, Jesus has built a new temple in union with him, the true temple. And because we're united to Jesus by faith through the Holy Spirit, we are the new temple of God. Y'all who couldn't get in have become the new temple. Isn't that amazing what Jesus has done for us? Sometimes God feels far away, but guess what? If you're trusting in Jesus, he is in you because as an individual, you are the temple of God and then collectively and corporately as the body of Christ, we are the temple of God. So what does God do to his temple? We, saw, we see first the, the church, we in Christ are God's temple by the, by the way, if you're not yet trusting in Jesus, today God is inviting you not just to come into the temple through faith in Jesus, but to become the temple of God through faith in Jesus, where he will dwell in you by his Holy Spirit forever. That didn't happen to me until I was almost 18 years old as a senior in high school, and I can tell you that 
He changed my life, and I sure did not expect to be a pastor up here preaching to you. So if it can happen to me, it can happen to you. So hang in there and pay attention. So the second thing we see is that God fills his temple with his glory. That's what we see. That's what temples are for. So I want to take us back to what happened at the dedication of Solomon's temple to the Lord in Jerusalem. So we're going to flip way back to 2 Chronicles. It's before Psalms. So if you go to the middle of your Bible and hang a left. Keep going. 2 Chronicles chapter 6. And we're going to look at verses 41 to 73. 2 Chronicles 6, 41 to 70, to 7, 3, not 73. So Solomon is dedicating the temple, and we'll see what God likes to do with, with his temple. Okay? 2 Chronicles 6, 41 to 7, verse 3. <clears throat> Solomon says this, And now, arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, guess what happened? Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. You see that, that, that God, what God did? That, and under the Old Testament, before Christ was actually crucified in time and space for us, securing our redemption, as they were looking ahead through all these sacrifices. God still filled this earthly temple, this building, with his, uh, a special manifestation of his presence, his glory. And the priests couldn't enter in because of the power of the glory of the Lord. They were so blown away by the glory of the Lord. And they fell on their faces and they praised God for his what? Steadfast love. Chesed. Grace. His grace. They're, they're, they've got gospel faith on their faces rejoicing in the steadfast, stubborn, permanent, unrelenting love of God for all who trust in him. Isn't that amazing? So this is the background. This is the picture. I believe this is the image that is in uh, Paul's heart as he is telling us what he's been praying for these Ephesian Christians. So... God fills his temple with his glory. We are God's new temple. So how does God fill us, his new temple, with his glory? Let's look now at Paul's prayer. How does God do this? And so what is Paul praying for? We know down in verse 19, at the end of that, 
the ultimate thing that he's praying for is that we, God's temple, would be filled with God's glory. So can you see the background? I'm not trying to be uh, patronizing, but we just saw how God fills his temple with his glory. Paul is praying for us, his new temple, to be filled with the fullness of God. Therefore, Paul's praying for the same thing to happen, but in the New Testament church that happened back in the Old Testament temple. And so you all were able to, well, so the, the building's great, and we're thankful for the building, but the building is not the temple. We are the temple. But, you know, there aren't priests trying to get in who can't get in, and, you know, we're not, like, falling on our faces. So what does it look like for the New Testament church to be filled with the glory of God? How does God do that? What does it look like? Let's look at Paul's prayer. The first thing that we notice about Paul's prayer is he is praying for a process. What I want you to realize is as we work down this list of the items that Paul is praying for, there, it's, if you think, get your grammar hats on, he's not going this and this and this and this. It's not an and, 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 and. It's an in order that, in order that, in order that. You know, I went to seminary. You don't have to go to seminary to know Greek, but if you look at the Greek, it, there, there's a specific Greek word that means in order that, in order that, in order that. And so Paul, this prayer is a prayer for a process. And as we look at Paul's prayer for this process, we will know more and more God's heart for you, his people, his temple. We will know what process to pray for for one another and for ourselves. And we will know the process that our entire lives are about and what our focus is to always be about. And this is God reminding me and you of how much he loves us and how much he wants us to know that he loves us and how much he wants us to focus on his love for us. That is the entire Christian life. All of our love for God and for neighbor flows from God's love for us. And so let's look at this process together. The first thing he prays for is strength. Okay? Verse 14 and following. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, how, you know, riches of his glory, how rich is God in glory? Oh, I don't know. You take a guess. He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and in your inner being. Okay, let's pause. Why in the world is, is Paul praying for power and strength before he prays that we be pray, filled with the fullness of God. What is that? This is a rhetorical question, so don't, you don't have to shout it out. But think in your mind. At whatever Paul is about to pray for for you, the first thing he's praying for is that you'll be strong enough by the Spirit of God to handle the answer to his prayer. Okay? So this is a really big deal, is what we see. And what we see is the thing that he's praying for at the end of the list, you're not going to get unless God first does the first part of the list. He's praying for an actual process that happens in the lives of Christians and that's meant to be happening for the rest of our lives. So we need strength of the Holy Spirit to do a work in our hearts because we are too weak to handle in and of ourselves what Paul is praying that God will do for us. We're, we're naturally weak. We need supernatural power. This is strong language. 
All right? Whatever Paul's praying that will happen to us, we can't handle it apart from the supernatural power of God. And so he prays first that we be strengthened by the Spirit with this power from God. You're like, well, what's this for? All right, I'm glad you asked. Let's keep going. Verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Like, wait a second. Come on. All right. If I'm trusting in Jesus, Christ is already dwelling in me. I have the Holy Spirit, right? We all, I'm, I already am the temple of God. Isn't Christ already dwelling in my hearts? Why would Paul pray for Christians that Christ would be in their hearts? I believe we can understand what he means here that we would experience the presence of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God, by the Holy Spirit, dwelling in us in a more deep, rich, powerful way. And so what you need to know, Christian, is that there's more to it than this. There's more that God has for you than you have right now because the glory and goodness is that God is determined to continue to fill you more deeply with his love for you throughout the rest of your life into eternity. That if you feel like you're on a plateau, like, hey, I've been, I've been a Christian for 50 years, I've read the Bible cover to cover like 16 times or whatever, you, you, you feel like you're on a plateau sometimes. This is God, I dare say, by the authority of Christ and his word, telling you, I love you, and I want you to know my love even more deeply. You have not yet begun to scratch the surface of God's love for you. You haven't. And I can confidently say that about every single one of you and myself in the room. And isn't that good news? Because haven't you tasted something of God's love for you? Haven't you experienced as a Christian something of the presence of Christ in your heart? Some kind of confidence that God's forgiven you of your sins? But the good news is that God wants more for you. And that's what God wants us to stubbornly, lovingly pray for one another. It's already happening in our church. Why do we sing about Jesus all the time? Why do we talk about God's love for us all the time? Because that's what God tells us to focus on in this, right? His love for us. So that we would, as his temple, experience Christ Jesus dwelling in our hearts more deeply. That's the second thing that he says for us. And some of the, I don't do this all the time, but one of the prayers that I like to pray to help me with this is, God, thank you that you really, really, really do love me. And thank you that Jesus really, really, really did die for me. And then just sit there and stew in that for a little while. Um, try it. Uh, it. It works. It's comforting. All right. So he's been praying for that. And then he reminds these believers and us of the reality of God's love for us and our situation in it. I'll tell you what I mean by that. Look at verse 17 again. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, right? Through gospel faith. The more we trust in Jesus, the more we experience his love. That you, and the, the, there's a specific tense actually here to these words, and so I'm going to put it this way. That you, having been rooted and having been grounded in love, all right, so pause there. That you having been rooted and having been grounded in love, what is he talking about there? He's using a mixed metaphor, two metaphors right next to each other. 
He's using uh, an organic metaphor and an architectural metaphor. There's two specific words there. The first is rooted in love, right? As we see here from the rest of the passage, and you'll see it more and more as I preach on, the love that we're rooted in is not our love for God. It's God's love for us. And so I want you to imagine yourself individually and us as a church as this tree and you've got these roots that are sinking deep, 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 deep down. You are planted in rich soil. You know, if you look on our Pinewoods Church website, so we've got a tree in the name, we say, planted and growing in the love of Jesus. That's what we're about. That's what this is about. That's what everything's about. You've been planted, so your roots are sinking down into this soil. As a tree, yes, there's hurricanes, but set that aside, all right? You can't like jump out of the soil, right? There's no tree that's like, man, I don't know. I'm out of here. You know, you're just stuck in the soil, right? Think about that. What is that soil? It's God's love for you. You can't get out of it. What's the second word he uses? Grounded or founded upon God's love. Look at this building. It's great. This building has a foundation right? And the foundation, if we're the building, the foundation is what? You can shout that out. The love of God for us. This building, again, hurricanes aside, is not going to go, hey, I'm out of here, right? You are stuck in love. You can't get out of it. We're going to see that even more and more. Not just looking down, but we're going to look other directions as well to see God's love for us. The reality that you can't get out of is God's love for you. And I need to believe that more deeply, and so do you. All right, so let's continue. Verse 18. So he says that, that, that you, having been rooted and grounded in love, What? He goes back to this strength thing again. Verse 18, may have strength for what? Okay, what do I need this power for? What do I need this strength? If God's going to fill me and as the church fill us with his glory, what do we need the strength for? What are we anticipating? What is this light and power that's going to fill the temple look like? You ready? What is it? May have strength to comprehend with all the saints, right? All the fellow believers, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So we've looked down at the soil and the foundation of God's love. You can't get out of it. But where else do you find God's love? Oh, I don't know. Wit, link, brit, every direction. So just imagine looking ahead of you, and it never stops. And then looking behind you and looking it's funny, we're looking at the cross, right? And it never, ever stops. You're looking this way, it never, never stops. Looking this way, it never, never stops. Looking this way, it never, never stops. Looking this way, deep, deep down, deeper than you can imagine. It never, never stops. There's this golden sea of God's love for you that you're just like suspended in. <laughs> you know? I want you to hold on to that image because it's so helpful for me. And I rarely actually think about this. I can preach this all day long, but in my daily life, I forget this all the time. And if I remembered this all the time, 
man, I would be so much more fun to be with. You have no idea. And you might too, so just throwing that out there, right? Right? We need strength to be able to grasp how much Christ loves us, right? And so how do we, how, how do we focus on the love of Christ? What, where, where do we see Christ's love for us displayed most brightly? Well, it's through the darkness of the cross. You know, the face of Jesus. How do we see God's love in the face of Jesus? Well, on the Mount of Transfiguration to his, a few disciples, his glory just busted out, right? He, he let it leak out. His face was shining brighter than the sun, it said, right? That's, that's one way, right? But in Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus before the Son of God would become flesh and Jesus would go to the cross for us, God prophesied saying that his visage, his appearance was marred more than any man. He had a crown of thorns and he had blood dripping down his face and he was unrecognizable. And he did that in love for us. He cried out the greatest cry of love in the midst of suffering for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You may ask, that doesn't sound like a cry of love. That is a cry of love because it's his cry of experiencing the equivalent of eternal torment under the wrath of God in our place for our sin. And he did it on purpose. He says, no one can take my life from me. I lay it down, and I will raise it up. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, the gift of our salvation, that the the manger would lead to the temple, and then it would lead to the cross, and then it would lead to the tomb, and then it would lead, lead to the throne at the right hand of God, and then that Pentecost by the Spirit dwelling in us in a way that he had never done before. That's what the cross was all about. It's so that we could be God's new temple, that that we could be at God's table together, Jew and Gentile, former sorcerer or not, right? Together. And what Jesus did for you at the cross is not only a demonstration of God's love, It secured your salvation so that you could be free from the punishment you deserve and embrace God's adoption and God's love for you forever. Can you see how being filled with the glory of God, there's not bright lights happening right now. These are good lights, but there's not this big glory cloud. But can you feel the glory of God right now? As you think about Jesus crying out on your behalf at the cross, experiencing that punishment in your place, that's how much he loves you. And guess what? I have no idea what he went through at the cross. I have no idea how much he loves you, loves me. But God wants me to know that love more. That's what he's telling you this morning. Jesus loves you more than you can possibly ever comprehend, and he wants you to know that love. And he wants you, what am I going to think about for the new year? Everything going on, what's going to happen? 
God goes, here's what I want you to think about. My love for you through the cross of my son, Jesus Christ. That is the focus, not only of 2022, but for the rest of our lives. That's what it's all about, is that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Because what? It is finished. Amen? Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we love you so much because you first loved us. Lord, help us to have that strength to know your love more deeply. Keep pointing us to the cross of Jesus to reprove your love to us over and over that we might love you, that we might love one another, and that we might love those who don't yet know you well. Pray these things for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? God is good.